this praise is greater than us, that we can join together and just sing worship to you because of who you are. If for no other reason than because you exist, God, you are great and you are worthy of our praise. Pray for Ben as he speaks, that he speaks your words to your people and that we open our minds and our hearts to be able to receive that this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. in the fall of 2008, and I was nervous, (sighs) nervous, nervous, because I was driving to a girl's house to pick her up for a date, and some of you might not know what that means because it's 2016 and things are different, and you used to not just text someone and say, meet me here at this time, you used to drive to their house with some flowers in your hand and knock on the door and meet her parents before you went on a date. It was this crazy thing that happened. And uh, I, honestly, I don't recommend it. It's terrible. But it's the way it's supposed to go. So, so I knock on the door, and I'm nervous. And of course, she wasn't ready yet. And I was like, okay. So her parents said, here, have a seat. And I was prepared, right? I was prepared for the questions, you know, what are your intentions? What are you going to be when you grow up? Which is not the adult way to ask that question. What do you want to do for a living? That's it. That's how adults say that, whatever. And I was like ready for those. And we sit down, and her parents sit across from me with the most serious look on their face. And her mom says, you're in Bible college, right? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, what are you studying? And I said, the Bible. <laughs> and she goes, my preacher's been telling me something that I want to know if it's true. And I said, okay. He keeps saying, Obama's the Antichrist. And if he gets elected, the world's going to end by 2010. How worried do I need to be? And I was like, I think you need to find a new church. And I didn't know what to say. I was like, well, um, you see what happens. And then I've never been more excited to see a date walk down the stairs. Like, I don't remember the date. It was terrible. I never went out with her again. But that moment, I was more excited to see that girl than I've ever been in my whole life. And it was so funny because, like, I don't know if you remember. You might have blocked it out because it was awful. You might remember that season, like, September, October, November 2008 when the election was happening and there's all this, all this talk about Obama and McCain and all of these politics that are happening and people saying that Obama must certainly be the Antichrist and the world's going to end. And now here we are, it's 2016. Sometimes I'm tempted to call that lady and be like, are you still here? Because I'm afraid maybe her church was the only one that got it right and they all went to heaven and the rest of us are just going, oh, everything's okay. I don't know. That wasn't a very funny joke. It's cool. But it's been happening for a long time that politics kind of gets nasty, right? Like the other person is the most evil, awful person on the planet. I'm going to read to you two quotes from a presidential election, and they go like this. They say, if he is elected, we would see our wives and daughters victims of legal prostitution. And the other candidate said, he behaves neither like a man nor a woman, but instead possessed a hideous I can't even say this word right, hermaphroditical character. Mind you, this is not a recent election. This happened in 1800 when Thomas Jefferson was running against John Adams. So it's been a long time coming that when election times come, we're going to accuse the other person of being as evil as possible. 
1940, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was running for his fourth term, most people accused him of being the Antichrist because he was working on forming the United Nations. And they would tell you that if you twist and turn this scripture that way and this way, that he is the Antichrist and the United Nations is going to bring about the end of the world. Maybe I should explain to you the term Antichrist is kind of a weird biblical term that Bible people throw around a lot. The really short answer is there is a group of people who believe that the Antichrist is this person who's coming who's going to end the world. The Bible tells you that the Antichrist is anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Like, so it's two different ends of the spectrum, but we'll just, that's just how this goes. Then it happened again in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was accused of being the Antichrist. And this one is far beyond measure of how insane it is. But Ronald Wilson Reagan was accused of being the Antichrist because his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. And all three of those names have six letters each in them, meaning 666. 666 is basically meaningless, just so you guys know. It's a misinterpretation. It's not that big a deal. If your, menu, if your meal today costs $6.66, it doesn't really mean what you think it means. But Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist because his name. At the same time, they thought maybe Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist because he had this birthmark on the top of his head. I don't know if you guys were alive to remember that, but he had this birthmark on the top of your head that if you squinted and you turned your head and you looked at it just right, it looked like a satanic symbol, Right? Then when Pope Benedict XVI was being nominated as Pope, there were people who said he was the Antichrist. It happens all the time. People are always predicting the world's going to end. People are always predicting that if this person ends up with this much power, it's over, right? I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to let you in on a second secret. If you were to ask me what the greatest sin of the United States was, and you're going to ask me because I have the microphone, so you don't really have a choice. But the greatest sin of, of the United States of America is greed and excess and a lot of things that get lumped in there. But the second greatest sin is the fact that is how much hope most American people put in political offices versus the God that they claim to follow. I want to I be really clear with you guys that God is not waiting on pins and needles, patiently waiting for the results of this election. He's not up there going, oh man, which candidate am I going to donate to? Which one am I going to endorse? Which one's going to pick? Which one's going to happen? And I want to be very 100% clear and honest with you that God is not with her, nor is God at all in any way, shape, or form interested in making America great again. There is nothing in the design and attributes and personality of God that led, leads us to believe that God is pinning all of the hopes and dreams of the future on the government system in the United States of America in the 2016 election. Jesus didn't come for us to put our hope in whoever puts their hand on the Bible on January 20th. He came so that we would put all of our hope in the story contained in the Bible that their hand is on. From the beginning, politics wasn't God's design for creation. If you look through the first couple books of the Bible and the story that God's writing, he, he, he creates the world and creates many nations. There's one nation in the beginning of the Bible that he is favorable towards, and that's the nation of Israel. Every other nation has a king as their system of government except Israel. Israel has judges, people that God appoints to be his representative. Who's the king of Israel? God. 
There was no design in the origin of creation for politics. You can tell from the meaning of that word that it wasn't a good thing, right? You know, understand this. Latin is, the Latin word poly means like many, and then the word tix is like a blood-sucking leech, right? That's my most political joke I got, guys. Like, let's go with it, okay? So, but this thing happened in Israel back in 6,000 years ago when, when, the, when the story is being written, and they see that every other country has a king, and they see that every other country maybe is, has it better than them because they've got one of theirs as a king, whereas the, the king of Israel, we can't see him, we can't hear him. And so they start going to God, and they start saying, we want a king we want a king to protect us. We want a king to help us. And God says, I am your king. And they say, no, we want a king that looks like one of us. You see, God, if, if our king looks like us, if our king thinks like us, things are going to be better for us. And so to make a really long story short, God relents because the people of Israel won't stop asking. And he tells them, he says, you're going to hate having a king, you're going to hate having any sort of human leader because they're humans and they will fail and it will be miserable, but if this is what you want, you can have it. And so they have it, and they think, this is it, this is everything we've ever wanted. And one of their first kings is a guy named David, and God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he says, David, your family will forever be on the throne. And so Israel goes, we've got it, we've got a king forever, he's one of us, he's an Israelite like us, things can't get any better. Well, because there were humans in charge, the kings fall and they sin and the kingdoms collapse. And eventually Israel gets split into two kingdoms, then it gets overtaken by the Persians, who then get overtaken by the Babylonians, who then get overtaken by the Greeks. And the whole time the Israelites are going, if we could just get a king that looks like us, everything would be fine. If we just get a king who thinks like us, who acts like us, who talks like us, everything will be fine. And then the Roman Empire comes and takes over the Greek Empire, and everyone starts thinking, I think this is the perfect time. I think this is when it's all going to go down. And Jesus is born to Mary, and everyone hears these rumors of this king who's born, and they see the stars, and they hear about the angels, and they hear all these stories, but then they realize he's a baby. But the time's coming, it'll happen soon. So you fast forward 30 years after the baby's born, and this, this guy starts walking around, and he starts saying things like, the kingdom is coming. And he starts saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. Follow me. The kingdom of God is coming. Follow me. And people start talking, right? Rumors start to fly. Buzz starts to build. This guy's, this guy's going to be the revolution. This guy's going to take over the world like we thought. This is the guy who overthrows the Roman government. He's going to be our king. And the buzz is building in weeks and weeks and months. And this buzz just builds. And all of a sudden, there's hundreds and thousands of people following this guy named Jesus. And he just keeps saying, follow me. The kingdom is at hand. And so we get to the point where there's several thousand people following him. And he goes up to this place called the mountain. And it's there that there's a clearing. And there on the mountain, the, the following reaches this fever pitch, right? For a thousand years or so, the Israelites have been oppressed. They've been ruled by emperors and kings and people who weren't like them. This is the guy who starts the revolution. This is the guy who's one of us. 
And so you know the chants are coming like, Israel, Israel, like however that went for them, I don't know. You know, and, and they're getting ready to start the rally and people are screaming and shouting and they're just so excited. This is the king we've been waiting for. And the way it works in the, in, the, in the time when Jesus is walking on the planet is the opposite of what we're doing right now. Typically, the person who is teaching or speaking would be seated and everyone else would be standing. And so the crowd is, the crowd is gathered, they're pressed in on each other, it's tight, and Jesus takes this seat right at the front and he opens his mouth and he starts talking and the people can't wait. So the hush falls over the crowd. They're all just waiting. What's the plan? What's the story? How are we going to throw Caesar out? How are we going to start our own kingdom again? What's, what's going to happen? And Jesus opens his mouth and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the crowd gets a little bit quiet. And they start thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is just like the intro. Maybe, maybe this is like the fun part, you know, where he's just building up to it and the, and the battle plan's coming and, the, and the, you know, the, the policy and the 12-point platform and all the promises, those are coming, right? But Jesus starts off and he says, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you need to know blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble And humble isn't a word that gets thrown around a lot in politics, unless you're talking about how incredibly humble you are. But Jesus says, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you need to know that the most important people are the humble ones. The most important people are the ones who are poor in spirit. C.S. Lewis says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so when Jesus stands on the top of the mountain and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you have to be prepared to put other people in front of yourself. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, you have to be prepared to do something drastically different than what anyone else is doing. And you have to stop being selfish and you have to start caring for others. So there's this, this hush that's fallen and the crowd's listening and the next line comes and it's even more shocking because Jesus says in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And you can imagine that people are starting to whisper a little bit like, I thought this was about a revolution. What's he talking about? Right? And people are starting to think like, this guy I thought we were going to overthrow the government. Why, why is he talking about people who mourn? Why is he talking about people who, who need comfort? Like, what? And he, but, but what Jesus is telling the people is that this kingdom is about more than you. This kingdom is about bringing hope to the mourning. And so he continues in verse 5, and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it's at this point in my mind in the Sermon on the Mount, it's at this point when the back rows have started kind of like, oh, would you look at the time? Huh. I got those reservations for lunch, and you know, the kids are getting antsy, and, and they start kind of like fading out just a little bit. And the people who just kind of got on a couple weeks ago, a couple days ago, they're kind of going, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Meek, 
Meek's not a word you use in a political, revolutionary kind of speech. That's not what you tell people to get them fired up. You don't say, we're going to go out there and we're going to be the meekest. But meek is an important characteristic when it comes to being a part of the kingdom of God. In his commentary on Matthew, Dr. Larry Schwinnard says this. He says, the meek are not weak, cowardly, or passively resigned to oppression. The strength of these powerless ones derives from their dependency on God. And thus they repudiate the worldly methods for achieving better conditions. He says, they're blessed because their vindication comes from God, not a short-sighted attempt to use force or violence to break oppression. And so these people who for hundreds and thousands of years have been oppressed by the Persians, by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, these people who just want their own king, they're saying, revolution, break from our oppression. And Jesus is saying, we're not going to do it violently. We're not going to do it with war. We're not going to do it with force or intimidation. But instead, we're going to allow vindication to be what God promises to us. And then he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there are people who will read this verse to you when you say, hey, you're going to go to like your high school dance. Like, I'm going to go to the dance. Like, no, no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you think that happens at your dance? Like, if you listen to rap music, you're certainly not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what Jesus says. But you know what Jesus is talking about here? What he's saying here in this moment is that if, if what you're after are the same things that the kingdom is after, if what you're after is what Jesus has promised, then you will be satisfied. What does God want us to be after? after? He makes it clear in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does he require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God's not all that interested in what kind of music you're going to listen to, the number one rule that God has isn't make sure you don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Every time I say that, you guys laugh. You must hear other people say it seriously. God says, what does he require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That's what the kingdom's about. That's what the kingdom is for. And he builds on the mercy when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And this may be the most important line in the whole, in the whole part of this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's the one that we try our hardest to live out every moment of the day. Blessed are the merciful, if you've been around other churches, and I, and I don't mean this to disparage other churches and what they're doing, but I want to be clear about who we are, and there's other churches who are like us in this way. You'll notice that, I mean, we're talking about politics, but we don't talk politics here. Um, you'll notice we don't organize boycotts. There's no signs out front about our stand on any, important, on any particular issue. You'll notice we're very clear. I mean, there's a red light and a blue light. We welcome Republicans and Democrats alike. Like, we're cool with it, Okay. But we're very intentional in the fact that there are some things we believe that are important. And there are things that we believe that Jesus has called us to. But we also don't bash people's heads in with them. There are a lot of churches who take a courageous stand against abortion. 
And let me be very clear here, there is no one in this room who's not grieved at the heart by what happens in abortion. But let me be also be very clear here, we'll never be a church that does a right-to-life march. We'll never be a church that protests at an abortion clinic. We'll never be a church that has a sign-up about abortion being murder. Because I want you to imagine with me, you know someone who has had one, and I guarantee you probably do. And if you invited them to this building to hear about Jesus, and they walk in the lobby and there's a sign on the, on the back wall that says abortion is murder, sign here if you agree, or something along those lines, is she taking another step in this room? If all she hears us say is that you're a murderer and you're evil, is she coming in this room to hear about the Jesus who can forgive what she's done? Absolutely not. Do we hate what that is? Are there other issues that we have stances on and that we believe about that we're not going to yell and scream about because it's more important for us to hear, for, for people to hear from, about, uh, from us about Jesus than those things? Absolutely. But I'm telling you right now, that when Jesus came, he didn't come to establish political platforms. He didn't come to establish super PACs that can fund candidates. He came to show mercy to the people who needed it. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the middle of a town, and these people throw this naked woman in the middle of town, and they say, she was caught in adultery, what do you want to do with her? And it's clear that Jesus is against the act of adultery. It's clear that she's in the wrong. But what does Jesus do? You know, you've heard this story before. What does Jesus do? He shows her compassion. And so it's, that's why we're not the church that's known for our political stands or our boycotts. We want to be known as the church that loves Jesus and loves like Jesus. We want to be known as the church where the merciful, where those who are shown mercy are showing mercy to other people. Jesus continues and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. And I imagine in that moment on the top of the mountain, you could just feel the air leave the place. Anyone who had any remaining hopes about a political revolution, about fighting a war, anybody who'd been sharpening their sword, anybody who was planning an attack, all of a sudden hears peacemakers, hears you will be persecuted, hears people will be against you. All of those hopes and dreams are dashed. Because Jesus is teaching them about a different kind of kingdom. He's teaching them about the kingdom that's coming in heaven. He's teaching about the reward, not that comes from having the right guy or person in office, not the reward that comes from winning the election and getting the laws passed that you want passed, but the reward that comes the day when we start to see heaven on earth. Chuck Colson said that nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man faster from the kingdoms of God more than the views and how they exercise power. One seeks to control people, the other to serve people. The other, the one promotes self, 
while the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position. The other lifts up the lowly and despised. What's the goal of the kingdom? It's to bring heaven, the place where there is no pain, the place where there is no sorrow, the place where there is no trouble, to earth. His next line is very simple. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how, shall, how, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be tossed out and trampled underground by people's feet. A couple months ago, we read that line and we talked about salt and its saltiness, and my wife gives me a hard time because I said that day, there's no such thing as too much salt. So now every time I cook, Whitney's like, there is a such thing as too much salt, honey. <laughs> but if you've ever watched like a cooking show or any of those things, you know Almost every time, if, if they're judges on the show, one of the things they'll criticize very first is there's not enough seasoning on this dish. Because the importance of salt is that everything it comes in contact with, it makes better. Except maybe an open wound. That might hurt. But other than that, it makes it better. It improves. Salt also means a lot less to us now than it did 2,000 years ago when Jesus is saying this. 2,000 years ago, salt was used to preserve, salt was used to save, salt was used for a multitude of purposes that they couldn't live without salt. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, what he's telling the people is, you make this world a better place. You make this world a livable place. And he says the same thing in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it out under a basket, but a light gives hope to all the house. This is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not an election. The kingdom of God is not a politician. The kingdom of God isn't even a law. The kingdom of God is hope. The kingdom of God is salt that preserves, that, that improves, that saves. The kingdom of God is light, the beacon of hope. I want you to imagine with me that you're on a boat, and it's not 2016, but it's 1816. And you're on this boat in the middle of the night, and it's dark, and you don't know where you're going, and you've been at sea for a way too long. And I want you to imagine that as you're sailing, that as you're rowing, that as you're moving, all of a sudden, in the distance, you see this faint flicker. And when you see this faint flicker, you know exactly what it is. You know what that light means. That light means land. That light means shore. That light means there is hope ahead. That light means that in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of being tossed by these waves, in the midst of everything else going on around us, that I just keep my eye on that. Nothing else matters. This is the promise of the kingdom of heaven. This is the promise of the hope that Jesus can give. That in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of being tossed by everything else that seems to happen, if you want to follow Jesus, all you have to do is keep your eyes on the light ahead that says heaven is coming to earth. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to challenge you to maybe for the first time today make a decision to follow that Jesus. 
Maybe the Jesus you've always heard about is the one who's angry and vengeful and has a list of rules for you. Maybe the, list you, the Jesus you've heard about is the one who only endorses one candidate or the other. Maybe the Jesus you've heard about isn't the Jesus who came for mercy and compassion, but the Jesus who came to make your life miserable. I want to challenge you today to follow the Jesus who loves because this Jesus loved you so much that he came to this earth and he was the only one to live the perfect life. He was the only one to be without sin, the only one to never have been angry, to never have committed adultery, to never have killed, to never have lied. He did all of those things and instead of, of leaving and having the free pass, he took our punishment that we deserved for doing all of those things for us. And each week here, we take a moment to remember what he did for us. So here in just a second, the guys are going to pass the bread and they're going to pass the cup. And I want to show you that the bread, it represents Jesus' body broken for us on the cross. And the cup represents his blood poured out for us. And I want to remind you that it's, it's not for the red, it's not for the blue. It's not for the right, it's not for the left. It's not for the it's not for just the Democrats. It's not for just the, the fascists. It's not for just the Republicans. It's not for just the communists. It's for every single person. For all of humanity, Jesus came to die for those who were willing to say, I follow him. If you've never done that, if you've never followed Jesus after the service today, I want to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus. So here in these next few moments, when the bread and the cup come, remember the sacrifice that was made, not for political gain, but for your soul.